0: It is good to be with you in the house of the Lord tonight. I always enjoy coming before you. I always enjoy worshiping with you. Um, It is the highlight of my week many times. This evening we're going to get right into it. I'm not going to have any clever introduction. My cleverness is not that clever. I'm going to read to you a quote, and then I want to tell you a little story, and then we'll get into it. A quote from Dostoevsky, a man who lies to himself and believes his own lies becomes unable to recognize truth, either in himself or in anyone else, and he ends up losing respect for himself and for others. And when he has no respect for anyone, he can no longer love. And in order to divert himself, having no love in him, he yields to his impulses, his indulgences, in the lowest forms of pleasure and behaves in the end like an animal. And it all comes from lying, lying to others and lying to yourself. The date was February 12, 1974. The man was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He had been arrested. He was the author of the Gulag Archipelago. This was a book that was written to tell of the horrors of communism, especially the communism of the Soviet Union. Before he was exiled out of the country, he released a text called Live Not By Lies. I've told this story in a couple contexts, but I think it's so powerful to listen to a guy who simply told people to stop believing lies, stop spreading lies, and the power that it has, because many historians credit Solzhenitsyn with bringing down, being the force that brings down the USSR. His last words before leaving his homeland urged Soviet citizens as individuals to refrain from cooperating with the regime's lies. The regime had gotten power due to lies of a better tomorrow, of a utopia society, one where everyone would work together. The regime continued because people put forth those lies. He said even the most timid can take this least demanding step towards spiritual independence. If many march together on this path of passive resistance, the whole inhumane system will totter and collapse, and indeed it did. Lies are poisonous to us as people. Lies are poisoning to us as a church and as a nation. If we've learned anything in the last several years, have we not seen, have we not bore the effects that lies have had on people as individuals, as nations? as the world. It's interesting now, things that we've known to be true were still true. Lockdowns didn't work. In fact, there's many things that said it could have caused more damage than good. When you factor in all of the things that people had as far as deaths of distress from alcoholism and drug abuse and suicide... It didn't help. You look at Shanghai now. You look at Hong Kong now with their uh, Omicron spreading through their country. They had been locked down for so long and it didn't matter. Now they're paying the price. Lies from all different places have come on us. The primacy of truth in the Christian life is a continuing theme that runs throughout the course of the Bible. Jesus the central figure of the Bible, claimed to be the truth. Did he not? John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And indeed, he is the personification of truth. And as those who are image bearers of God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we too should be a constant reflection of truth in our life. And yet it didn't take very long after Jesus' death For wolves to creep into the church and exchange the truth for a lie. As Paul proclaimed in Ephesians in Acts 20-29, wolves would even come from among the leadership. So many of the epistles were written to correct false doctrine. To correct the false doctrine that was preached by false teachers. And like the other New Testament writers, the Apostle John realized the importance of truth... In the individual life of Christians and consequently in the church. Tonight, we're going to be looking at 2 John 1 through 4. We don't have chapters in 2 John, so don't get too nervous. We're going to see the importance of the primacy of truth in the Christian life. When you look at the three epistles of John 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, they seem to be written together or at least very close together, where 1 John was more of uh, kind of explaining the whole overarching theme. Second and Third John seem to be more specific to people. Second and Third John are very short. They're very short because he says, I'm coming, and this is just kind of a thing to get you through. This is a bridge. This is a band-aid. I'm coming to correct this stuff, but until I come here, I just wanted to get a couple words out to you. John had a sense of urgency regarding these false teachers. In fact, he's going to tell them, don't even give them hospitality. Don't even open your door to them. Don't even eat with them. A harsh thing to say back in this time because what we have during this time is is a persecution of Christians. We see in 1 John that he describes the false doctrines as Gnosticism. Gnosticism is very common in the New Testament in those times. And it's something that if you're not familiar with, you're going to hear it an awful lot when it comes to different epistles that that, um, many of the writers were addressing. See, Gnosticism has this belief that there's some special knowledge, there's some higher knowledge that you need. In some forms of it it's going to say that you know God can't actually be with men because God is all good and spiritual and he isn't going to get himself dirty by touching dirty man who is flesh because the body was evil. And so there's a lot of these intermediaries. And how do you get to these intermediaries? Well, you have to have special knowledge or do special things or have a special practice. And this was mixed with all sorts of stuff. It was like an overarching ideology, but many people took it in different ways and there's different ways it was practiced. You can mix it with... Judaism. You can mix it with mysticism. It reminds me of today's Scientology. I remember a Scientologist wanting me to take their test on their machine that they made and would tell you that you need their system and you need to pay them money. It was quite a nice little scheme. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm a born-again Christian. I have no need for you. They said, oh, no, Scientology makes Christianity Even better. You see, that's what Gnosticism will do. It'll just tag on like a leech. Gnosticism is still around today. Don't think it's gone anywhere. It's evil. It is a direct affront to the sufficiency and inerrancy of Scripture. Because it says, so we have in 2 Peter 1.3, it says that we have everything we need for life and godliness. And it says, no, you don't. You need this. It attacks the sufficiency of Scripture. And if you attack the sufficiency of Scripture, you attack the inerrancy of Scripture. Because God says, what I gave you is enough. So if you have anyone who comes to you and says, the Bible's not sufficient for this... They're calling God a liar. And make no mistake about it, we have Gnosticism today. The health wealth movement. Ah, but if you know how to pray, if you know how to write me this check, if you know how to be happy in this moment, if you drink this water from Chernobyl, which I don't know why you would do that, but okay. (laughs) How about Jesus calling I had a conversation with God and I wrote it out and then I wrote down his response to me. And I go, well, that's interesting because that's what the writers of the Bible said. Are you saying you're writing out scripture? I have a word from the Lord. If you have a word from the Lord, it better be in scripture. Even the woke movement. Vodibachum coined the term ethnic Gnosticism and later, I think he actually changed it to intersectional Gnosticism to include all the other branches of critical theory. Lest we leave out the LGB community, lest we leave out fat studies or feminist studies or whatever other studies are out there. Even from within the church, there are hints of Gnosticism in The new perspective of Paul. They claim to have this never known before information about Second Temple stuff that totally changes what the Bible says. Gnosticism, in all its forms, is poisonous to the church. It should be purged from the church completely. What's interesting about this is John writes this letter in AD 95, which is during a time of persecution from the emperor Domitian. And yet with all the persecution that surrounds the church, John is concerned with the false doctrine that seems to be circulating within the church. What becomes instructive here is that we as the church today need to become less concerned with the looming persecution that continues to lurk at our doors and instead be concerned with the constant threats to truth that have worked their ways into our pews and have worked their ways into our pulpits. John has come up with a battle plan to stop the false teachers in the church, and we see that in his letter. The key to this battle plan is the primacy of truth. In 2 John, it is apparent that the word truth plays a major role in John's teaching, for truth will be mentioned five times in the first four verses that we'll look at. Truth is often the neglected part of the Christian life. When we think of the Christian life so many times, we think of faith, we think of love, we think of hope, we think of joy, but we forget about truth. But truth is important to God because truth is an important part of God's character. To not care about truth is to trivialize God's character because all of God's attributes must be held in constant perfection at once or none of them are in perfection. There is no faith without truth. There is no love without truth. There is no hope without truth. There is no joy without truth. And this is the problem with postmodern thinking. When postmodernism comes in, they try to deconstruct all truth. They try to even deconstruct the idea that there is truth. And when they do that, they deconstruct everything else. And this leads to despair. When you deconstruct all of the truth, all you have left is nihilism. Everything's pointless. Why even bother? There is no hope. And we wonder why we have a rampancy of depression. Well, we took hope away from everyone. Why is everyone so depressed? I don't know. And so, with truth being a more pressing issue than even persecution, and with the importance of truth to God, John goes to write his second epistle and immediately explains four reasons the Christian must maintain the primacy of truth in their lives and in their local church. If you're not already there, turn to 2 John. Let me read. The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. For the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Lord, may your truth be known in this room tonight. May your truth be known in this church. May your truth be known in this city, and in this state, in this country. May we be people who live for truth, who say truth, who desire truth, who go after truth. Lord, as I teach tonight, I pray that I will teach truth. I thank you for these people. Bless them as they hear this, Lord. In your son's name, amen. All right, so let's get into this. Four reasons the Christian must maintain the primacy of truth in their lives and in their local church. Number one, Truth is the connection that binds us. Verse one, the elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth. Now, John affectionately probably calls himself the elder. It could be that he was trying to hide his identity. Again, this is time during persecution. I think maybe more he was just using this as a term of endearment that he used. He was the last apostle alive, he was old, he was the elder. He talks to the chosen lady. This could also just be a way that he personally talks to a church. Personally talks to this church as a point of affection. Again, he could be be hiding who this church really is. Could be that this church actually met in a lady's house. I don't know. The commentaries are very spread out over what it could be. But this is what I do know. We have John... Talking to somebody who is chosen of God. They are a Christian. Whether this is a chosen group of believers or just a chosen family of believers or a chosen person, they are chosen. Because our greatest need is not to be unified to each other, our greatest need is to be unified to God. Without being unified to God, we have a purposeless, meaningless existence of tragedy that ends in literal hell for eternity. If you're just a bag of fizzing gas that was made out of some primordial stew, you have no purpose on this planet, maybe except to procreate, and then you're done, and you can die. Thank you very much. That is what we have. And yet this is a life of tragedy. This is a life of pain. Why have it? What does it mean? If you have no purpose in this, if you have no hope in this, what kind of life are you leading? In the church, there is no unity without a common goal or purpose. And in the local church, there cannot be unity with each other spiritually if we aren't first unified to God. You see, we're all heading towards one spot, are we not? We're all looking in the same direction. We're all looking to please the same person. That is our goal. We have a purpose. It is a common purpose. That common purpose unifies us. Today we spend a lot of time talking about how we can be reconciled to each other, but fail to remember that the priority is is being reconciled to God. We spend more time in activism than we do in evangelism. We spend more time in partisanship than we do in discipleship. God has chosen us and therefore bound himself to us in salvation. Go to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. Starting in verse 4 it says just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoptions as a son through Jesus Christ himself according to the kind intention of his will. To the praise, the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us and the beloved. God chose us and bound himself to us. He gave us the point from which we are able to be unified to each other. That same gospel then becomes the focal point or the touchstone by which we all then become connected to each other. Going back to 2 John, what you see is he says, to the chosen lady and children whom I love in truth. You see, this is a personal connection that John creates. His love is not just misplaced affection, but rather it is love that is in the truth of the gospel. In truth is not saying, well, I really do love you. No, I mean it truthfully. Yeah, I love you. No, no. What he's saying is that his love is centered on the truth of the gospel and therefore true love. Because the only a relationship that is centered on the gospel can say it is truly based on love. I will say that again. In a different way, you cannot truly love anyone if that love isn't centered on the gospel. Not truly. Is there aspects of love in it? Sure. Can you truly love someone as much as you can if it's not centered on the gospel? No. What does that look like when you don't center it? Well, a relationship that doesn't center on the gospel fails to recognize that there is a holy God. A relationship that doesn't center on the gospel fails to recognize that we are created image bearers of God with both a purpose and a responsibility to our creator. And that means something. We have a job to do. God created us for a purpose. We have a responsibility to our creator. And if we're not doing what we're supposed to, we're not doing what we're designed to, we're not really being what we're supposed to be. As the army said, we're not being all we can be. A relationship that doesn't center on the gospel fails to recognize that we are depraved sinners. It allows people who sin to deflect and say, it's not my fault. If I wasn't born in this time, or if I wasn't born in this place, or if I wasn't born to these parents, or if you hadn't done that, or if this hadn't happened, it's not my fault. It fails to recognize that we are depraved sinners that affect others because another lie that people believe is that my sin only affects me. What's the big deal? No one sees this. No one knows this has happened. What's the big deal? As though somehow our sin doesn't affect our connections horizontally the same way as it affects our connection with God. It fails to recognize that our greatest need is salvation. It fails to recognize that we have been saved for the purpose of glorifying God. I remember Pastor Scott saying, go back to Ephesians, that he will never say Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 without adding verse 10. So let's do that. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one would boast. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You see, a relationship that's not based on the gospel doesn't care about good works. Doesn't care if they're doing the things that they're supposed to before God. But if you love someone in the gospel, you're going to say, no, no, you are saved for a purpose. The gospel, then, is what puts us in truth. It is the basis for our relationship. It is the basis for our unity in Christ. Notice how he draws these concentric circles. When you go back to 2 John, he goes, To lay in your children whom I love in truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth. We are connected through time and space to all of those who are in the truth because we have the same purpose. We have the same goal. We have the same God. We have the same mission. We have the same Bible. We are connected through time and space with these other Christians because of what is in the word of God, because of what Jesus has done. Our position in truth connects us with others who are in truth. And that creates a community. This is a community that can enjoy deep fellowship because they are based on truth. And this is not only a reality. This is a command. Go to 1 Peter 1. First 1 Peter 1.22 1 Peter 1:22 says since you have in obedience to what the truth to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren fervently love one another from the heart for you have not been born again not of seed which is perishable but imperishable that is through living and enduring word of god the truth connects us and it is a commandment to love one another because of the truth We are to create a community. You are to have community with the ones in your local church. You are to have community with those who you have common goals, common purpose, common God. But not only is the truth the connection that binds us. Verse number two, and point number two, truth is the force that binds us. Notice what he says here in verse two. For the sake of the truth. Or other versions might say, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. That truth connects us and binds us because we have truth within us. We are then unified because of the truth that abides in us. Abiding in us is a present, uh, it presents a, rather a clear parallel to the Holy Spirit. Look at John. The Gospel of John, that is, 14. In John 14, 17, I'll start at 16. It says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. And that is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you. ...and will be in you. The Holy Spirit indwells within us. This is why once the truth abides in us... ...it will be with us forever... ...because God will never forsake us. He has us forever. Not one of us will be let go. Once we are transformed... ...and indwelled by the Holy Spirit... ...He never leaves us. And the transformative power... ...of the Holy Spirit within us... ...is then the driving force... That connects all Christians. It is the force by which Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14. When he says. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this. That one died for all. Therefore all died. Paul was convinced of the truth of the gospel. And this was the driving force for his life. You see before that. Paul was like us when we were unsaved. He was dead in his sins. He had exchanged the truth for a lie, just like Romans 1 says. And then the Holy Spirit illuminated his mind, transformed his heart. The Holy Spirit is the truth, and thus the truth becomes the driving motivator for the unity that we maintain in the church We seek to be connected to other people who are in truth as Christians because of the truth that indwells us and motivates us to seek out the truth. And this is why it is so important to John and to other apostles to correct this error. Because if truth is the basis of our connection and in truth is the motivating force in our connection to God and to others, why would we allow anything false in our lives Why would we allow anything false in this church in between us? Why would we allow anything that would seek to threaten that unity? And we may say that we are people who want truth. But are we people who act like we are pursuing truth? The truth in our lives. If truth is indwelling us, then we should act like it. But too many times, instead of pursuing truth at all costs... We act like the truth will hurt us. We act like the truth is somehow detrimental to us. This this becomes very apparent in things like conflict resolution. We don't confront other sin or fail to deal with conflict in a biblical way because we idolize our comfort or maybe our superfluous peace. And somehow we have picked up our thinking that truth is somehow more injurious to us than letting people go on in sin or letting people go on continuing to hurt others while maintaining the false pretenses of unity and peace. We smile. We say everything's fine. We walk away. We know everything's not fine. We know they're doing things, but we don't want to confront. That's hard. You see, somehow the truth is more injurious to us, and we're not courageous, and we become cowards, and we rather pretend that we have unity when we don't. It's like that family that you hear of, stereotypically, who has all these problems, but they keep it all quelled down until either the matriarch or patriarch dies. Once they die, oof, open game. It all comes out right? For so long they just kept it all swept under the rug. Kept it all maybe in family business. Nobody talked. Everyone smiled. Didn't want mom or dad to think anything was wrong. Somehow we think the truth is going to hurt us. Maybe you're on the other end of this. Maybe you were given truth. Or maybe someone just pointed out something that was false in your life. Someone pointed out a sin. Someone pointed out something faulty that you believed, faulty that you were doing. And you weren't thankful for it. Because you know what? When someone takes the time to point out truth in your life or false in your life, we should be thankful, full stop. But we're not too many times we're too easily offended by truth because it seems too harsh, or, or maybe it wasn't given in the right tone, or maybe it wasn't the right time, and maybe they didn't do enough of the, well, you know, and this and that. And they just gave it to us straight. They said, Brother, I have something against you. Too many times we're too easily offended. And while tone and timing and word choices are definitely considerations and definitely things that we should do when we are confronting someone, using loving words, using correct times, having some spiritual maturity with it. Ultimately, if we are given truth by someone else, no matter how it is given, we should be thankful for that truth and desirous of that truth, even if, and maybe especially if, it is offensive to us. Quote here by Samuel say says, the people who confront you with an offensive truth do not hate you. The people who comfort you with a lie do hate you. And if you prefer a comfortable lie over an offensive truth, then you hate yourself. Because the truth indwells us. There should be no truth that is too hard. There should be no truth that is kept silent. Verse 3, truth assures us. Back to Second John. It says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. John takes a very common greeting, grace and peace. I think it's used in like 12, at least 12 of the epistles, Very common greeting. He takes it and puts his own little twist on it, his own little mark on it. He says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. Will be with us, including himself. See, normally when you give a greeting, you just tell other people grace and peace to you. But he said, no, 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 grace and peace and mercy will be with us. This is more than just a wish of goodwill. It is a declarative statement of assurance of the future. A reminder of what the future holds for those that are in the truth. Because commonly, right, grace is getting what you don't deserve, right? Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And peace is this friendly and tranquil relationship we have with another person. Except this just isn't any old grace, This just isn't any old peace, any old mercy. This is what comes from God and Jesus Christ. So grace becomes you as a guilty sinner that is made a co-heir with Christ. That's grace. You didn't deserve that. Mercy sees you as a helpless and condemned sinner that is rescued and given new life. Peace sees you as formerly as enemies of God and objects of his wrath. And now you're at peace with God as his children but again notice the connection that there is to truth we have no assurance if we do not have the true gospel you see salvation cannot be obtained by any type of manipulation of reality but rather the payment had to be made realistically in truth and love and we're about to celebrate that aren't we You see, we have no assurance if our salvation is based on a capricious God that randomly overlooks overlooks sins like the Muslims. Allah just overlooks sins of some people and others he doesn't. And there's no assurance. There's no basis for that forgiveness. But brethren... We have the receipts for our salvation, don't we? They're written on the hands of our Savior. You want receipts? Go look at the hands of my Savior. You want the receipts? Go look at the feet of my Savior. You want the receipts? Go look at the side of my Savior. That's my assurance. That's salvation that's been paid for. My sins weren't just let go. They were paid for. By my Savior. Our assurance was made in truth and in love. And our insurance then gives us hope, the hope we need to continue our race and our fight. We run and we fight because we have a hope for the future. Now, maybe some of us need to get up and start fighting. Some of us maybe thought that this was a picnic, not a war. But if you fight, you're going to get tired. You're going to get weary. If you run, you're going to get tired. You're going to get weary. I don't do much running anymore. And when I say not much, I mean zero, <laughs> negative almost. But when I did run, you run and just think, wow, this is awful. That's, that's what I did. It can be a struggle. You want to demotivate a people? Take away their hope. What hope is there going on if there's no hope for a better future? That's what those outside of Christ have. You have no hope. Oh, maybe my future's going to be better. Maybe. Maybe you'll get hit by a truck. Maybe COVID will get you. I work in the ER. There's lots of things that can kill us. What do you have to look forward to then? Why does it even matter then? We meet the struggles of today only because we have the hope of a better future. Our hope isn't a wish. Our hope is expectation of a promise, an expectation of a promised future in heaven with God. So we meet the challenges today because we have the assurance of our grace, mercy, and peace in the future based on the truth of the gospel. That's our assurance. And so now we have a point of connection. We have a motivating driver. We have an assurance of hope for the future. And lastly, in verse 4, we see that truth will control us, controls us now. Now. He says, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. If the gospel is our connection to God and each other and the gospel motivates us and gives us assurance of our future, it is only fitting that we would walk in a way that is consistent and authentic to the gospel you see, we are commanded by God to walk in a way that is consistent with the same truth that binds us and assures us. But left to ourselves, we become like Pilate in John eighteen thirty eight, The kind of person who suppresses the truth to the point of even questioning the existence of truth. And we sit here and say like the postmodernists, what is truth? Truth for you, truth for me, what is truth? This is where we find ourselves today because our culture has suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness and replaced the truth of God with the lie of postmodernism, the lie of pragmatism, and this questions the very existence of truth. Thus, we're all trying to live in a way in this culture that is right in our own eyes, and that's what we have. When you take away truth, Only power exists. Because when we all don't submit ourselves to an overarching standard, all we have is, I think you should live this way, and I'm bigger, so you're going to do it. I think you should live this way, and I have more guns than you, or my nukes are bigger, so you're going to do it. And that's what we have today. A continual power struggle with no one submitting to the truth of their creator. That explains our culture. That should not be in the church. We have truth. John writes here that God has called us to walk in truth. But we can say, but what is truth? We can ask that in a real way. The reality is that our depravity is not only do we not want to obey God because we're rebellious... We have no idea how to live our lives because we were dead in our sins. And every one of us has to come to the realization and conviction in our lives that apart from God, we are utterly incapable of knowing how we should live. We don't know who we are truly. How do we know how to live apart from God? Once we come to that realization, now the importance of the Bible becomes clear. Because you have no idea what you're doing, and neither do I, apart from the Bible, right? We have no idea how to have a marriage apart from the Scriptures. We have no idea how to raise children apart from the Scriptures. We have no idea who we are as a people without the Scriptures. We have no idea what we're doing in this life apart from the Bible the all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe who designed humans and thus knows with absolute authority and certainty how we as humans should be living graciously breathed out the truth of how we should live and how we should glorify him through the writers of the Bible. Are you thankful for that? God could have saved us and said, figure it out, I told you once. But he didn't. He told us the Bible takes us from a complete befuddlement in how we live our lives to absolute truth because God's word is truth. The Bible is the inerrant and infallible word of God because of God, because God is truth, his word is truth. Go to John seventeen seventeen. Very simply, but think about this. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify, make them more like you, God, through your word. That's how he's going to do it, because his word is truth. The truth is the thing that makes us more like God. Our total inability to know how we should live our lives means we should rely completely on the Bible for our view of truth and for the, eth- the ethical guardrails we use to walk in truth. When we do not walk in the way that we were designed to as humans, we are living a lie. Think about that. God has designed us for a certain thing. Not only did he design us to glorify him, right? When he, put us in, when he put Adam and Eve in the garden, he did it for a specific purpose. To glorify him, to reflect the glory. That's why the image of God was on us. We were supposed to reflect that back to God throughout all of creation. And we failed to do that. And then God came and he died on the cross. So that we once again could reflect the glory of God. And he said, I didn't just save you for funsies. I saved you to good works. You still have a mission to do. I saved you for good works. That's why when Jesus was in Matthew 20, he says, go. Make disciples. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And so when you don't do that you're not actually even being what God wanted you to be. You're not acting like the human God made you to be. You're acting like something else. You're like a hammer that wants to act like a screwdriver. You see, the transgender movement, or even more recently, the furry movement, go look at the search engine, thank me later, Those movements that we have in this country simply highlight what is going on in so many of our hearts. We are acting like something that we're not. We are acting like something than what God has created us. And so when you don't walk in accordance to the Bible, you live a lie. Sin is not only an assault on God's authority, it's not only a personal offense against his character, but it's also a distortion of the image that he placed upon us because we act like something else than an image bearer of God. We don't even act human. Christians are to be marked as those who pursue truth in all aspects of their life. We're to be people who operate on facts. Go to First Timothy four. First Timothy four, verse six. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of the sound doctrine, or you could say the true doctrine, which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit. It's my life verse. But godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is this, that we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. We are to be doing profitable things Right? Bodily discipline is at little profit, but it is profitable. So it is good to discipline your body. Let me be clear in case I get emails later. Godliness is profitable for all things. We are not to be people who are spending time on silly myths or conspiracy theories, but instead we are to be concentrating on what the word of God says. God has told us we're to be productive members of the body of Christ. We are to be studying the Bible in order to a disciple, in order to evangelize. The world, rather, the world would rather us be unproductive, wouldn't it? So what does it do? It entertains us. Because the world has figured out a synthetic way to give us that sense of accomplishment that we get from being productive By putting us on social media, or by putting us in front of the TV, and they figured out that the brain chemicals that we have, we can synthesize that, and we can make people unproductive, and we can indoctrinate them, and we can stop Christians from doing things like discipleship or evangelism. And you know what? We'll give them them things on TV that are things of constant gossip. We'll make gossip magazines and we'll have gossip TV shows and we'll we'll have silly little myths and and we'll put those myths up on TV shows and investigate these myths and, and have people watch them and spend hours in front of them. Or maybe we'll put things on social media that are myths. Maybe we'll put things on social media that are just... Conspiracies and have people waste their time on that instead of being productive. And we fill our time being unproductive. And we zap our energy. And then we steal our focus. Are we satisfied with that? Are we satisfied with being entertained instead of productive? Are you satisfied with just entertaining yourself during the day, or would you rather be productive for God? You see, does the truth of what God has made you to be, has it indwelled you enough, has it motivated you enough to drive you to be who you're supposed to be to God? We must understand at the end of this world, we're going to stand before Almighty God and account for what we have done. Will we be a people who wasted their life not being controlled by truth? Or will we be people who have wasted their life because we were distracted? Truth is imperative, it's so important. All of us, if we think proudly and we reflect long enough, we'll believe lies. Some of the greatest ones are, it's not my fault, or this doesn't hurt anyone, or I can just keep doing this. What, beliefs, what lies do we believe? What lives do you believe? What lies do we need to get out of our life? How can we replace lives with truth? How can you replace lives with truth? How can you help others replace lives with truth. I hope that Riverbend is a place that shines the light of truth in this world because that's who we're supposed to be. I don't want us to be famous. I don't want us to be some great bastion. I want us to be a lighthouse for truth because that's what God wants and that's what glorifies him. And that's what it's all about. I work for the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's what I want. That's enough. It's enough to see my Savior and hear Him say that. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. Lord, may we be a church of truth. May we be a church that continues to preach truth. May we be a church that continues to hear truth, believe truth. May we be a church that says truth to one another. May we have the courage to accept truth in our life, no matter how hard it sounds or how hard it is. May we do this because it pleases you, and that's it. It's for your glory, Lord. This is about you, not about us. May we remember that. Amen.